weekly geeky squeak. Yet again, I'm on the road in the final leg, nearly, of my three-week trip around various conferences and friends and family members. Today, I am talking to you from a hotel room in King's Cross. I am overlooking the railways. I can almost see Platform 9 and 3 quarters, if it existed, Harry Potter fans. Um, and a uh, perfect spot for train spotters, although bizarrely not many trains really come and go. Maybe that says something about the state of British Rail. And also from my window, I can see them uh, building the new Google office, um, which looks very large uh, and has, even now in its early stages, uh, androids um, marking floor levels. So, yeah, (laughs) an area that has certainly changed since I last lived in England. As I have been on the road, a short selection of links for you this week, but also an interview with Simon Harmon, the project lead at Loki, which is an interesting decentralised privacy network who I spoke with yesterday, actually, also in the hotel room, so quality may be a little up and down, but it's an interesting interview and I wanted to get it out as soon as possible. So let's get started with the links that took my interest this week. First was an article from Dig um, on Lego. Uh, The second Lego film has just uh, been released. I look forward to seeing it eventually. I think in older incarnations of Lego toys, there was this fictional oil company. Um, And uh, this article digs into why. Why was there an oil company? And the oil company has changed in recent years and become other things. And this company is also used in the first film to be the kind of evil overlord. And it's just interesting how... You know, even a toy that sometimes as abstract and as flexible as Lego with its different uh, tie-ins has its own little world, its own little mythos. And uh, it must be a lot of fun creating those sorts of, I don't know what the plural of mythos is, mythi? I'm not sure. (laughs) Anyway, um, that's a nice little dig into, if you forgive the pun because it's on dig, uh, into the story behind this fictional oil company. And then secondly, um, from The Verge, I spent... Last week with a friend who had three young children and watching the amount of time they spend on screens is, I mean, even as people who also spend a lot of time on screens, you notice, maybe it's because you notice your own bad habits in young children, but think, you know, they're being manipulated. But I mean, is that any different from us, I guess? So maybe it just challenges your own preconceptions. But obviously, I'm not the only person to have noticed this. And there was an article on The Verge about the screen time debate is pitting parents against each other. And uh, as always with parenting, different opinions on what is the best way to do things. And screen time debate is uh, no exception. Some people rationing it, some people saying it's fine, etc., etc. I'd be interested to know what your opinions are. And if you have children, how you uh, maintain their screen time and how you enforce it. Because you know, especially as they get older and have their own rooms and things, it's very hard to, to actually know what they're doing. And second, my ancient relics section in quote marks. Firstly was an article from uh, peterme.com about the original Macintosh user manual. Um, I am a technical writer. That's how I make my money. I don't really write manuals these days. I don't think that many people do anymore. But this original manual of the uh, Macintosh and its sort of wonderful pictures and descriptions and its wonderful waspiness, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male, of course, that would be very different these days, especially from a company like Apple. But just interesting to see how things have changed and how we used to uh, train people into use computers, whereas now I think I, I, mean, I think manuals for computers now are basically just plug it in, turn it on, and then off you go. So it was quite interesting to see how that used to be. 
And then finally, in even older ancient relics, this is an article from The Guardian on the battle for the future of Stonehenge. Stonehenge, the infamous sort of series of stones in the southwest of England. Um, it's always been controversial because the monument, as like many other ancient monuments, needs to be taken care of. And people, lots of people go to visit. It makes a lot of money for uh, national heritage here in the UK. Um, but people can't really get very close as you can to some other ancient monuments in the rest of the world. And it's also surrounded by a very busy road, which is my main memory of visiting it when I was younger. So this this wonderfully English article has a dig into the the people behind the the battle for how Stonehenge should be preserved for the future. And there's some just some great <laughs> Englishisms in there. Just it feels like an episode of uh, The Archers, Midsummer Murders, and uh, God knows what other British shows all rolled into one. But it's actually real news, so a wonderful read, even if you don't know very much about Stonehenge. And finally, uh, from the Financial Post, seven excellent ways to start a presentation and capture your audience's attention. I am about to start up again for the year my uh, presentations for uh, at conferences. And yeah, uh, there's this sort of first impressions aspect. Um, I mean, first impressions count, but then you also have to keep delivering. But the way you grab people in, especially if they're passing between rooms and just overhearing the starts of talks and things like that, is is actually quite important. And some really good tips here if you are new or experienced in the field of presentations to how to grab your audience's attention from minute one. That was my roundup of articles from the week. And as promised at the top of the show, next is an interview with Simon Harmon, the project lead at Loki, uh, a decentralised privacy network based out of Melbourne, Australia, actually. we uh, I didn't leave it in the interview because it was a bit uh, inside baseball, shall we say. Um, but uh, he, they actually are based very near to where I used to live in Melbourne and we were talking about some restaurants and things <laughs> before we got into the, the real meat of the interview. Uh, interesting project. Um, and actually quite a nice realistic interview. It's sort of semi-based on blockchain and so many projects in this space can be very unrealistic with the way they talk about what they do. And Simon was wonderfully refreshing and blunt and honest, maybe as the Australian in him. Um, so it was a good interview. Enjoy. My name is Simon. I'm uh, the project lead at the Loki project and we're working on a decentralised uh, mix net. In other words, the, the, the bandwidth authorities are decentralised. Uh, and decentralized and anonymous uh, messaging application that allow you to send a message in such a way that not even the servers that are hosting your messages know that you are sending those messages, primarily because they're scattered and it's also being routed through that mixnet that I mentioned earlier. Um, Loki is also a private cryptocurrency that's integrated into the system through service nodes, um, and the service nodes are also the computers that host the messages and run the mixnet. So it's a kind of an intertwined privacy ecosystem, you could you could say. So let's let's just go back one step because, um, from my understanding anyway, and which is loose, this sounds a little like something like Tor. Is that correct? It is. Not? It is a lot. It is a lot like Tor in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, well, parts of it are anyway. So the the service node network that's created through interactions with the Loki cryptocurrency. Um, this the whole thing came about because we were wondering what we could do with uh, Marston. Monero as well, I think, is a is a worthwhile point. Uh, but we were looking at them and going, well, okay, so how can you improve um, 
the user experience through the use of masternodes. I mean, Dash's instant pay was a pretty obvious one. Oh, cool, you can now send payments with instant confirmation times. And that was all great, well and great. And we were thinking about doing um, a version on Monero with that. But we were then thinking, well, what else can uh, this strongly incentivized group of nodes do that also has a built-in voting mechanism to regulate their behavior uh, on the chain? We were thinking, well, why can't you do it off the chain? So that sort of led us down a rabbit hole where we were exploring mixnets and private messaging and what some of the problems were with that and how this could actually solve it. And where we landed is, is that masternodes are effectively a cyber attack resistance mechanism. And the one huge glaring flaw in the Tor network is that it is not at all cyber attack resistant. If you have enough um, relays, you can basically watch what everyone's doing at any given time. Uh, my back of the notepad calculations put the cost of cyber attacking the Tor network at about forty to fifty thousand dollars per month, which to various security agencies around the world and actually quite a large number of countries, that's peanuts. Even it sometimes if there were was a particular Tor user that you wanted to watch, it might even be economically viable to cyber attack the Tor network just to look at one person. That's how cheap it is. Um mm. And because obviously there's a lot of money being spent on investi- high-profile investigations, so you know fifty thousand dollars for a couple of months is really not a lot of money when you have a team of investigators already working on it. It's, it's about the same, in fact. So, um, I would I would say that the the main thing that Loki has over Tor and over the mixnets is that it has this built-in element of cyber attack resistance. The downside, of course, is that. Uh, Loki, Loki Net is a brand new mixnet. It's quite untested at the moment. It's stable. Some weeks it is, some weeks it's not. Um, and it's not currently launched on that service node network. But we, there are a number of other advantages. We've rebuilt a mixnet protocol from scratch. Um, one of our developers, Jeff, uh, has been working on ITP for a number of years now and basically wanted to ask the question, how would uh, ITP look if it was built in the modern day? Uh, and the result is uh, the underlying protocol behind LokiNet, which is called LARP or Low Latency Anonymous Routing Protocol. Um, and that is essentially, instead of having this thing where we, we only allow TCP connections and uh, we use SOX proxies and things like that to make the Tor network work, instead it's basically just straight up IP tunneling, so very similar to a lot of VPNs. And what that means is that everything just about everything works straight out of the box so if you wanted to uh you could do all sorts of things host any number of applications that rely on various ports you could run any number of cryptocurrencies for example is a good example where you have a large group of daemons sometimes they need their ports forwarded um you could host those daemons within LokiNet, and it would be uh it would be anonymized on the transport layer in other words the ip address is hidden um, and that, that's a pretty cool functionality that just works right out of the box. So there's some protocol upgrades happening there as well. And so is the main mechanism for preventing the attacks the, the voting? or is It's it not the voting. It's the fact that um, the operators involved need to have a stake in the network in order to become a relay. So unlike in Tor where literally anyone can just turn a server on and then run it and then slowly over time the bandwidth authorities um, – assign them roles as 
uh, relays and guards and exits and entry nodes and all of that sort of stuff. Instead, in this, they're, they're authenticated by their stake. So if the network catches them doing something nefarious or not behaving themselves, not routing traffic properly, they can be voted off. So that there's two, two things happening. One is they require a stake, which prevents um, a, a single actor coming in and purchasing large amount of network. Um, especially if the lockup of the circulating supply is above 50%, which at the moment it's currently getting very close to, um, because then it becomes nearly impossible to acquire enough in order to cyber attack the network. And secondly, there's that voting mechanism in place where if someone is trying to take down the network, there are built-in mechanisms to kick those nodes off such that they lose their authentication privileges and are no longer allowed to be relays on the network. And um, I guess uh, the the let's go back a step out of the the technical details. Sure. What? Um, why create this in the first place? What problem were you trying to solve from yourself or from other other people you'd worked with? Well, myself and the other people uh, involved in the project, um, as I mentioned before, we we were really keen on Monero, and we've been keen on Tor and various other privacy projects for a long time, like. I think the most attractive thing for me is the protection of the freedom of speech. I mean, I, I think nothing showcases this better than the appearance of um, all of this censorship that's happening on Patreon and all this deplatforming of various content creators. Like, say what you will about those people, but that's not what the internet is about. The internet is a free and open exchange of ideas, however batshit crazy they might be sometimes. Um, and I think that handing over the reins of this thing that was once quite free and quite beautiful um, to these corporations that um, based on a political agenda or and that can go either way, whether you sit on the left or the right, like this should be a, a matter of concern to you. It's where mm. at, at the whim of whatever a corporation or a particular group of people within a creation deemed to be acceptable can just be flicked on or off. And that's, that's not, what made the internet that's not what made it what it is today that's not why we all use it and i think without the existence of private platforms amongst other reasons as well i mean i another thing i think is that privacy and security go hand in hand you can't there's no point securing something if the information that you're trying to secure is not something that you want to keep to yourself or keep hidden i i think that while Bit, the Bitcoin blockchain might be secure in, in that sense, because it's not private, you automatically lose about information. Um, so th- there's a number of things happening here. I mean, there's also a humanitarian angle where um, you have oppressive governments and what have you censoring things as well, um, which is obviously not something we think about a lot here in the West, but happens all the time overseas, especially in places like Iran and you know, it's tools like this that help journalists and and out there without being interfered by by various governments. So, the, all these privacy technologies are very interesting to me for all of these reasons. And I think um, the more people that work on these problems, the better. So that's what attracted to me it, it, them to me in the first place. So, forgive me if this is a slightly ignorant question, but I know some blockchains already suffer from this problem of being dominated by particular groups um, mm. through their 
you know, incentive algorithms, their consensus algorithms, whatever the problem may be. So how do you stop the same thing happening with Loki in that it may not be a corporation, but it may be a group of people with a particular agenda who gather enough influence on the network to block certain opinions and how and, and i guess from a governance perspective how do you do you step in and say that's not wrong that's not right or do you let them do it <laughs> so everything we design we design with the philosophy of privacy by default so actually almost everything that the node operators touch so messages internet traffic or transactions they can't actually see the content of those transactions and most of the time they don't know where it's come from and most of the time or they either know where it's come from or where it's going one of the two they never know both at the same time so mm-hmm. I, immediately the censorship aspect of things be, stops becoming a problem because unless you're doing a blanket attack on the network where you're blocking all traffic you're not going to be able to sift through that information and find out what you want to block uh, or who you want to block because you just don't know who they are and I, I think that's a very important aspect of yeah. Um, privacy that a lot of people in the blockchain space just seem to ignore. I mean, if you look at Zcash and a number of the zero coin and zero cash protocol coins out there, um, I mean, Zcash in particular, I, I, I heard an updated number recently. I'm not sure if, if this is true, but it's somewhere between 92 and 98% of all transactions are completely in the clear. I mean, if they're in mm. the clear, they can also be censored. So mm. there's sort of not really a point in that if you're not if you're going to have privacy it needs to be by default because otherwise you're really supporting that anti-censorship um side of things or or really enabling privacy at all i mean Mm. in zcash the privacy data set isn't really a huge issue because it's cryptography based as opposed to obfuscation based like loki and monero and others are but it still stands to the point that you know, Zcash doesn't isn't really used a lot for the purpose that it was set out for. Mm. So, what what is visible? Is there a is there a public ledger at all? Or yeah, there's a public um, ledger. Um, yeah. you, you just won't know how to interpret it unless you have the correct yeah. keys. So it's kind of yeah. like yeah. It, it's hidden in plain sight, if you will. Um, yeah. We use a number of techniques, which I can go into if you like, but it, it can get a bit yeah, sure. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, high level ish. Yeah. Well, what are you most interested in? I mean, I could, I could talk about the currency side of things, or I could talk about the internet traffic side of things. I could talk about the message. Actually, side. more on the traffic, I think. Um, maybe we'll go to the currency side in a second, but the sure. the traffic. Yeah. How do you? Well, how are you uh, securing that? Well, very similar to um, other mixed nets out there. Tor being the primary example, we use a, a method called onion routing to um, secure mm-hmm. the traffic as it's being transported through these various nodes. And how it works is um, you randomly select uh, three nodes on the network and you, you wrap up the, the thing that you want to send across to a packet of information in, in these layers. And this is where it gets its name from because you have an outer layer, a middle layer and an inner layer. And so, and then you have the information that you actually want. So what happens is you pass this bundle of layers to the first node and through their public key, they're able to unwrap the first layer and see what's beneath it. And in that second layer will be uh, information telling them where to send the bundle to next. And then the third node repeats that and they unwrap the inner layer and see where you actually want to go on the internet. Now, the cool thing about this process is that 
The first node only knows where you are and the middle node are. The middle node are only knows where they are. And the last node only knows where the middle node is and where you want to go. No one in that in that uh, path is able to construct a complete image of the traffic. And you can extend that further by adding more hops in your path. So if you go from three nodes to, say, seven, then you're creating a number of stop uh, stops between you and the last node to make it even more difficult to predict where you are in the network. Um, so that's kind of how traffic gets obfuscated. Now that becomes an issue if there's more if someone owns more than you know thirty or forty percent of the nodes because there's a reasonably good chance that they'll make up two of the three of the nodes that in any given circuit. Um, so if that if that's the case, then they can generally build a complete picture of the circuit that's being uh, used. So you only really need thirty to forty percent of the nodes in order to be able to effectively analyze the traffic, which is why the cyber attack issue is such a big thing, and why we think that Loki Net is superior to other mixed nets out there for that reason. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so the and then the the token is the incentivization the. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the payment, as it were, for hosting a node. Uh, not the payments, actually the reward. Uh, so yeah. there's actually been quite a bit of discussion in the Loki community recently about how the the token fits into that model. So our our thinking was when we started this because we came at this from the currency perspective um, that if we were able to successfully create this mixnet and create the messenger and also have this uh, cryptocurrency that was doing advanced things such as instant private transactions through Blink, for example, that Loki, the currency itself, would be valuable and running a node on that network would be um, a desirable thing because you'd be earning this currency and also staking it. And then through the usage of the currency and through uh, you, you manage to drive network value by having the store value in between uh, users purchasing it and merchants selling it. So in that gap or however long people hold on to it is where the value is captured. So that's, that was the original model that we went with. But there's now been another school of thought that's uh, come along more recently, which is to turn Loki not not exclusively into a utility token. We still want to do the currency side of things, but to um, help that process along by also introducing somewhat of a freemium model. So there are some things in the network that are pretty taxing to do, such as routing certain types of information or, for example, creating large group chats within the messenger because it's a distributed architecture that's actually quite taxing on the network. So we were thinking of creating this private authentication token that can anonymously authenticate various users that pay for this. Um, I use the word token in a way that most cryptocurrency people will find confusing. Uh, Let's call it a access pass. Um, mm-hmm. some, something like that for, so for a set amount of time, you have certain privileges on the network that allow you to do extra things that most users wouldn't want, but you might. And through that way, we can offset inflation that's created through service node rewards because these tokens would be burned and also provide advanced users with more features that would be desirable. So there's kind of a hybrid, um, value capture system at play that we can see working. Okay. And actually, just another, before we dig into a bit more detail of the platform, another sort of point of comparison, I guess. So to me, so far, well, not not, not necessarily on the 
the kind of the privacy side, but on the platform side, it seems a little familiar to something like um, status, status, or mm. in, in terms of the like the platform side. The, the I mean, there's a lot of these sort of blockchain operating systems, which operating system is maybe a bit of a strong word, but that's <laughs> the term they use. Yeah. Um, so, is there some similarity there in in the the ability to create kind of um, I guess useful applications on top of the platform. So a lot of the stuff that Loki does won't actually touch the blockchain, which is actually a really nice feature. Um, So we have uh, something called snaps, which other people that in the Mixnet world would probably also describe as hidden services. Um, There's, we're thinking about expanding that beyond just being able to create these hidden applications within the network um, that you have to host yourself to something where the service nodes could host it for you and there would be a payment system involved in that. But what we want that to be is very open and very easy. So literally any web application or website can be hosted as a snap within LokiNet. And that means that your hidden and all of the clients that use it are hidden as well uh, on, on a network level. So it's a really cool feature. We're also thinking about integrating a public key authentication API so we can do away with emails and phone numbers when we want to use stuff. We can actually just use a a public-private key pair like you would uh, through an SSH client or something like that or, you know, your Bitcoin wallet or whatever else you have um, to authenticate yourself onto various services and and that sort of thing. So that's something else we're thinking about. But um, when I've looked at, uh, uh, I guess you'd call them competing blockchain projects, I don't actually think that they're competing in any real sense because none of them are really touching the privacy space in in the way that we are. As far as I'm aware, I I can't remember exactly what Status is doing. I I know it's quite popular and they've got this messaging application, but I think um, because they're tied to what I understand to be an ERC-20 token, I don't don't see the anonymity backing behind it. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, metadata issues uh, associated with that. Um, and as far as I can tell, um, I'm not sure how far they've gotten with actually dealing with anonymity as a real concern with, with their application. And there's a number of other projects that are dealing with similar yep. sorts of things, like Mainframe is another one that yep. I know that claimed to be doing this dark routing thing that was never really substantiated as far as I'm aware. There's also another project... Um, the name of which is uh, Orchid Protocol, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, they raised some ungodly amount of money at around about the same time as we were and were essentially going to build a mixed net that you had to pay to use through cryptocurrency. Um, and it now looks like they've dropped off the radar completely. Um, so if I was investing in them, I'd probably want to know what's going on because it doesn't look like there's a lot happening. Um, so no, I, I don't really see any direct competitors to what we're doing. Um, I, I think um, I haven't really seen anyone addressing the specific concerns that we are or targeting the audience that we are. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how how do people build these snaps? Sorry, one uh, sec. What's um, is my audio like really right now? Probably is. Yeah, it's jumping a little, yeah. Yeah. I just assumed it was... (laughs) 
my apologies. My sound card flipped out. <laughs> it does that right. sometimes. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so, yeah, just uh, how how uh, how do people build the snaps? As I said, um, snaps are literally any web application or website. So if you have a website, say oh, right. okay. a WordPress site, or if you have um, – Let's go something more advanced. Let's say an e-commerce platform that integrates cryptocurrencies into the payment methods that, I don't know, you, you, you tell me, like literally any web application will work. So long as it consists of, so long as it can be rendered in a browser, you can yeah. host it as a snap. And actually, you can do far more than that as a snap. We have an IRC server that's running as a snap. We have a Mumble server that's running as a snap, like, Literally almost anything that connects to the internet can be hosted as a snap, and it's actually really easy. We have one page of documentation on how to run a snap because it's literally that simple. Okay. And most things work right out of the box. There's no need to configure routers. There's no need to yeah. do anything funny to the operating system because what we've done is we've hijacked operating systems, DNS system, so that um, what uh, we do is uh, – the daemon that you run when you when you use LokiNet, um, it listens for when you call the dot Loki domain. So if I type in uh, WordPress, my WordPress dot Loki, it will forget that the rest of the internet exists, and it will shove everything to do with that connection over LokiNet because it's been told to do it over dot Loki, and then it will use LokiNet to find out what my WordPress means or whatever address you put in there means. And so it will create a path and it will go there. And the operating system doesn't need to know about it. The specific hardware you're using doesn't need to know about it. The application that you're serving doesn't need to know about it either. It's all just shoved through IP tunneling. It's actually quite eloquent. And what what sort of things have you tested? I mean, you mentioned a couple there, but uh, are there any that have worked especially well or any that you hoped would work better or any particular applications that work best, I guess? Nothing works as well as it does over the actual internet because we are running it through these nodes. Um, So we're adding like a second of latency just straight out of the gate to every connection that we make, which is obviously not ideal, but that's how mixed nets work. sort of a fundamental issue that can't really be fixed. Um, And also the protocol is quite young. So there's a few things that have to be, um, redone, rejigged, optimized in order to make it faster. But at the moment, we are actually thinking about doing this um, this video where we basically get Jeff and a couple of the other developers to um, have a challenge to find the application that doesn't work on LokiNet first. Hmm. So they're going to go through a list of just whatever they can find and see if it will run on LokiNet and... Um, their assumption is is that pretty much everything will, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, but just quickly looking at your roadmap, it's uh, important. Oh, the roadmap snaps. that needs updating? Yeah, that one. Okay, so snaps, <laughs> it's, well, it says quarter one, 2019, which I guess we are in. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, Actually, I just uh, it just occurred to me that the the naming of things is strange because you've got uh, snaps, which is also a canonical uh, project, which could be confusing. <laughs> Although it's an app, it's a the ability to uh, install an application, kind of any application. So 
The only issue you might run into is potential copyright. I don't know if they have that sort of thing. Snaps? Um, I'm not aware of this. Yes. Snaps is a canonical uh, packaging format as well. Is Just it? One S, though. <laughs> oh, no, one. yours is also with one S. Yeah. Yeah. With? I don't know. Uh, I'll have to look that up later. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> And then being a role player, LARP also uh, jumps out at me, but you have to got double L there. So. Yeah. Look, I did, I'll be honest, I didn't come up with that one. All those snap proprietary Simon Harmon invention, stay away. <laughs> but, I mean, actually, on the, on the subject of naming, where did the name come from? Because, I mean, Loki has certain connotations that, you know, tricksters and things like that. I mean, I don't know if the name uh, sometimes might, I don't know. It, it may be you a, think it's a, a bit shady, view. a bit mischievous? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Well, that's actually kind of why we picked the name. We were having a real hard time picking the name. And um, the the technique the currency uses to obfuscate transactions is pretty much just trickery. It's like, here, here's a bunch of transactions that could be existing and then only one yeah. of them actually is. So, like, trickery is built into how the currency works. So we thought that the Norse god of trickery was actually quite a fitting um, title for it, you know. <laughs> and also it's low-key. Huh? Oh. Huh? <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, let's go back to we mentioned the robot needs updating, so I guess mostly you're on time right now. Yeah, well, um, Loki and Snaps and, the, well, not quite the Messenger yet, but they're all, yeah. they all exist. They're just not deployed on the mainnet. Yeah, you can go on there right now and join the IRC chat and see what secret things are going on there, see what weirdos <laughs> are hanging secret, out. Secret things can be going on. Well, that's right. I mean, so if, if you can get to it, it's not Quid that Quid 2 right? is Loki net exit functionality. What, what does that mean? So that means where we enable a feature on all service nodes where you can use them to access the wider internet anonymously. So just like you would use a commercial VPN service to, well, ideally you'd be using a commercial VPN service to access the internet without really your IP address, you can do exactly the same thing with uh, Loki service nodes, except in my opinion it's far more secure because you're not relying on just one person to um, render that connection. You're actually doing it in a decentralized and trustless way. Um, which is pretty cool. It's, it's just like Tor. So when you use Tor to access, you know, YouTube or Reddit or whatever and to hide your IP address for whatever reason, same deal, same same things going on except you're using LokiNet to do it. And ideally, eventually it will be faster because we'll have um, nodes that are incentivized to provide a minimum standard of bandwidth. So no matter which node you connect to, you should have a pretty good bandwidth throughput. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And then what, 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 not necessarily what's on the roadmap, but what are your ideas for the future after that's done? Oh, so many ideas. I, I mean, I, I think that this year is going to be quite a slow year, actually. I think, um, right. we, we've, I, I think people underestimate how much it takes to build these things. Like a oh. brand new mixnet protocol is not something that happens overnight. We've been, well, Jeff's been working on it since the start of last year, and it's only really just coming out of its sort of alpha phase at the moment. Um, and the messenger as well, Loki messenger is actually coming along quite well, but it's sort of one of those things that needs to have all the features you want right out of the gate. It's not something you can build up progressively. 
because people have come to expect a certain minimum standard uh, through their messaging applications. So they, what they want is they want to be able to use the messenger across all of their devices and it sync relatively easily. They want um, messages to come through and be reasonably stable. They don't want it. They they want to be able to um, control their messages, delete them, all that sort of stuff. Um, emojis support for you know all all these things that we've just come to expect of our chat applications. Which, if we look back to the MSN days, is like absolutely yeah. unbelievable that we that we can have all this stuff and have it be so stable and accessible all the time. Yeah. We don't want our anonymous messaging system secure though it may be to be like a horrible user experience. We want it to at least be comparable. I mean, it is going to be slower once again, because we're routing everything through three nodes and then they're connecting to this service node, which is propagating the message through a swarm. And then someone's going to go back into that swarm to find their message and collect it. Or they have to do a two way three hop connection to establish a peer to peer connection. And they've got to find out if they're online and everything else. So the backend architecture is a lot more complicated than, other messaging applications out there, which is literally just like, oh, hey, what's up? What, send me my messages. Or, hey, Facebook, what's, tell me what's going on right now. That's, that's all the back end that goes on client side on most messaging applications. That, but that is simply not the case with Loki, uh, with Loki Messenger. So it's going to take a fair bit of time to get that working. And the other really annoying thing that's really getting my go to the moment is that it doesn't look like there's a way of getting around having to create native applications for both Android and iOS and desktop, meaning we have to separately develop three separate implementations of this messaging application across three different platforms, which makes me very upset, but that's fine. Um, We've almost finished with the desktop now, so it should be fairly easy to just copy across the changes that we made there onto the Signal um, mobile and uh, both of the mobile uh, platforms so it should be fairly straightforward it's just gonna be a matter of time okay okay um and you have you have a reasonable team and some some funding uh so is everybody working on this full time or is it absolutely we have yeah. okay. uh 19 staff full time at the moment mm. um and that doesn't look likely to change we've got a fair amount of runway probably three to four years, depending on uh, unknown costs. Um, mm-hmm. So we're fairly confident that we'll be able to deliver everything that we said we'd do in our white paper and then some, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, the real question is whether or not when we actually do finish these products, um, sort of starting halfway through this year, sort of ending at the end of this year, are we actually going to be able to drive the adoption and the and the excitement yeah. around these products that we've we're hoping, and and I think that's really what's going to make or break Loki um, over the next sort of eighteen months to see whether or not um, people actually find the story compelling, find the products compelling. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that is of concern to me is whether or not the the privacy community really advocates for it, because I think that's really the only way that this is going to go anywhere. Is if they see mm. the work that we've done, they analyze the assumptions that we've made, they verified the the security of the specific implementations that we've done and they go, yep, this is probably the most secure messaging platform on the market right now. And if that happens, then we should see, you know, very high numbers of adoption, but if it doesn't, and that's my concern, and I also don't know how to get that. So 
they're, they're sort of the biggest challenge for Loki, I think, is to get that mm. technical endorsement from the privacy community. Well, on that note, uh, I mean, obviously Mainnet has only just kind of happened, but do you have um, active users or is it mostly uh, test users right now? Well, the mainnet, the Loki cryptocurrency mainnet launched in May last year. So I wouldn't exactly say it's oh, the cryptocurrency. The fresh, cryptocurrency. Okay. Yeah, the cryptocurrency has been going for uh, a little while now. We launched service nodes in September, which has been going really well. Um, we've gotten 400 and something service nodes up online at the moment, mm-hmm. um, we, which means that we actually have 40% of our circulating supply locked up there, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um as far as the testnet side of things goes with LokiNet, um, we have had bursts of, act- bursts of activity as we've released certain things and released certain guides. But, you know, as with everything, if it's not a whole ecosystem, it does tend to die down a little bit. But, yeah, I, I think um, things look pretty promising. There's We've got a fair few passionate community members that um, talk a lot in our chats and contribute to what's going on and, speak their mind about ideas about how we can improve the ecosystem and expand things when they're ready, which is exciting. But yeah, I, I think um, the, the challenge is, especially in this cryptocurrency market at the moment, without a finished product, it's, well, it's basically impossible to go to a mainstream audience and say, hey, you should be excited yeah. about this thing that doesn't yet exist. So yeah. I, I think um, I think for everyone that's developing blockchain-based projects at the moment, I think they will yeah. largely be experiencing the same thing. If they're trying to market to existing cryptocurrency users, they're marketing in an extremely saturated environment where there's just thousands yeah. of projects and it's very disorienting. Or if they're trying to go to a mainstream market, they'll be going to market with these very nascent products that have very untested, a lot of user experience issues and yeah, this is all very normal in the startup world, but I think cryptocurrency users are very, very impatient um, just because how quickly things can change. They they want to know that the bets that they've placed are going to pay off sooner rather than later, and I think that's probably quite an unrealistic expectation considering how you know Bitcoin itself took you know five years to build before it gained any sort of traction. Um, and many other popular applications on the internet today are exactly the same. They take years to actually polish and refine and develop this organic user base. Um, but then again, you know, then there's these so-called killer apps like, you know, your Snapchats of the world that just show up one day and then blow up over a course of months and it, all of a sudden everyone's using it. But that just hasn't happened in the blockchain world yet. And I see no reason why it will because inherently blockchain applications are going to be a worse user experience. So if you're competing with something that's already out there that's easy to use, you're not really targeting a mainstream audience and you shouldn't try to, in my opinion. And I don't, I don't, I'm not sure Loki fits within that mainstream market or not. I mean, everyone's got a need to use a secure messenger every now and then, whether it's to talk about a sensitive matter with a private, uh, with a family member about something or, you know, some uh, business transactions or anything like that. There, there's always times in our lives where we need privacy, but I'm not sure that that's going to be something that people use every day. I'm not sure if it's going to be something that's very compelling to the everyday person. So my opinion is we need to be quite targeted about it, at least at first. Yeah. No, it's an interesting 
perspective. I mean, I think sometimes the blockchain community has, has this tendency to try and over push things. And it's not like, you know, the Kubernetes or Docker community was going around telling everybody that <laughs> everyone should be using this. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> particular use case. Yeah, it's, it's actually an interesting perspective and a realistic perspective. Um, obviously, if you're pitching to investors and things, it's a little more challenging sometimes because they want to see growth, growth, growth. But um, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's the, actually a refreshing perspective to hear and from the investment perspective as well. I think they also have quite an unrealistic expectation because what they've what a lot of them have done is they've come from the startup world where, you know, it's basically expected that if you don't have a minimum viable product, you won't mm. be successful in your Series A funding. You might get seed funding if you're lucky. Um, you generally mm. won't, though. So generally speaking, um, developers go to investors with all products that already work and they can already start yeah. to give to users. Whereas in the blockchain space, and Loki is okay. just, we come to them with these very, often very advanced technical documents and these lavish ideas about these ecosystems and then we ask for a bunch of money and then they give it to us and wonder why they haven't been built in six months time it's just because it it doesn't work like that if you start from nothing and you want to build a really advanced product that's not going to work until it's finished it's not going to happen in six months especially and this is the worst thing about it is when they they give money to these people that have zero developers on their team um, they have very little technical credentials. And I think actually Loki at, at the very beginning was also guilty of this because we didn't, it wasn't obvious that we had the technical know-how how to pull off what we were talking about. And it's only through hiring that we've managed to do that. But it, I think, um, yeah, all of these projects that came in 2017, 2018, the, I think very little work was done to make sure that it was actually technically feasible because a lot of these projects is just not. Yeah. That's actually a really refreshing perspective to hear. <laughs> and I think, I think if anything uh, comes out of the crypto winter, as it's called, as it's being called, is that we actually end up with uh, people who are actually interested in the right things, decent projects that actually have some use and, um, and focusing more on the interesting applications of the technology. The incentivization mechanisms are useful, but I think we got too... Yeah, I, I think there are means to an end. And if you don't have a good end, which most of them don't, it was just, oh, incentives, cool. And then that was about as far as the discussion got. It's like, well, proof of stake, fantastic. What are you going to do with proof of stake? Where does it get you? You know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. And that was another weekly squeak for the week. Thanks to all the people who have been subscribing over the past couple of weeks. Much appreciated. If you are new or old to the show and the newsletter, you can find previous episodes on my new website at christianchiller.com slash podcast and slash newsletters, depending on your preference. And you can support the show at christianchiller.com slash support. And you can tweet at me at Chris Chinch and find all my other contact details on the website. So in the meantime, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.